0: Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry, and how these works might shape how we think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I am one of the principal investigators of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life Project, which, along with this podcast, is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. In this episode, titled Eros and Ecstasy in Plato and Anne Carson, I speak with Professor Talbot Brewer about Plato's conception of eros as that impulse which draws us out of ourselves and towards ecstatic union with what is good and beautiful. I certainly hope you enjoy our conversation. This morning, I am very pleased to have Professor Talbot Brewer on the podcast with me. Tal is Professor of Philosophy and Chair of the Philosophy Department at the University of Virginia. He specializes in ethics and political philosophy, and he is the author of a book that I very much admire and have been influenced by called The Retrieval of Ethics. Tal, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Jen. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, it's always such a pleasure to talk with you. So this morning, we're going to be talking about Plato's Symposium, and also Anne Carson's absolutely spectacular book, Eros the Bittersweet, which I know that we are both somewhat obsessed with. But let's start with Plato. You're a contemporary ethicist, you work in particular in what we might call virtue ethics. But what's your interest in Plato, and perhaps Greek philosophy more generally?
1: I like to turn to the Greeks for... Their conception of receptivity to reality. The Greeks shared the idea that there was something there to be receptive to, that the sources of action and the sources of inquiry are not just psychological states that happen to arise in us and send us in particular directions, but are rather modes of receptivity to the good. And, you know, one of the places where it's very hard to avoid such a picture is in our experience of of love. When we're really bitten by love, we certainly have the overwhelming sense that that we're opening to something of great worth, something uh, spellbinding and and good. And uh, to think of that experience as merely the psychological manifestation of matter and motion in our brains, it's a very hard picture to, to live. So returning to the Greek picture of that, experience, a picture under which it's an opening to reality, a way in which an aspect of reality, the good or the beautiful, impinges upon us and draws us out, can be quite revealing. That is why I'm drawn to the Greeks and to the Symposium in particular.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that receptivity is is central to Plato in a way that has been lost, I think, particularly in contemporary conceptions of agency, it's it's all about activity and anything passive or receptive is considered non-agential or sub-agential or really just not a part of our lives as rational creatures at all. So I just wondered if you could say more about the connection between receptivity and eros as you find it
1: in Plato the greeks were alive to the possibility of understanding the passions that that move us to act in a variety of ways with respect to eros for instance there are greek thinkers who regard the experience of erotic love as a form of madness that is attuned to nothing in the world and that produces thrashings about that don't make a lot of sense and there are greek thinkers who picture eros as a kind of divine madness, to use Plato's words from the Phaedrus, that is the kind of madness that, while we don't fully control it and don't fully understand it, brings to us something from outside that it is divine to be in touch with.
0: Let's talk about who Plato was and the Symposium in particular, just to give us a little bit of background.
1: The Symposium is, is interesting in the sense that most of it is not really dialogue. It's a recounting of a feast in which people took turns giving speeches. And Socrates, who is the epitome of the, the the embodiment of the Platonic picture of how to philosophize, he recounts a dialogue that he's had, and that's the form taken by by his speech about love. And and in this way the symposium seems to point toward a different picture of what it is to philosophize, a non dialogical So it's very important, and it's a a central point of many of his dialogues that it's not just an accidental fact that philosophy is being passed along in the form of recounted dialogues. There's something about that form of exchange in which philosophy really lives. So again, the symposium sort of hovers at the boundary between the conviction that the dialogical form is where philosophy lives and the opening to a different form of exchange of ideas. Everybody who comes before him offers what is undeniably a speech, and then Socrates, again, stands up and does hold the floor for a long time. Uh, so in that sense, you might call what he offers a speech, but he holds the floor by recounting a pivotal dialogue that he had with a priestess, Iotima, in which he... Believes his eyes were open to the nature of love.
0: So I think one of the things that can be difficult when we are trying to have a conversation or even to teach Plato on eros or erotic desire is that we think of eros in an excessively sexual, narrow kind of way. We think of erotica or the erotic. But Plato means something more expansive or capacious. So I wondered if you could just. Tell us a little bit about the broader understanding of Eros that Plato had.
1: It is connected with what we understand by the erotic, but it's also wildly wider than what we understand by the erotic. So we we lead up to Socrates' speech, we have a number of other speeches, one of which, and maybe the most spellbinding of which, is the one offered by Aristophanes. He offers a kind of a story of origins of the human race in which we are and half-complete pieces of a prior form of being and are destined to search for our own completion. The beings that precede us have forearms and forelegs and two faces and are so powerful that the gods become fearful of a revolt from them and cut them in two. And Eros is the longing for our own incomplete peace. And for Aristophanes, that myth of incompleteness provides a kind of uplifting comic picture of the thrashings about of, in our sense, erotic love, which does seem to aim at a kind of overcoming of the boundary of the flesh that we don't really believe in the possibility of, and yet we at least could be interpreted uh, in the course of lovemaking as striving for in some bizarre, possibly symbolic way. And Socrates wants to attach his Discussion of Eros to that experience, but he wants that experience to be the first very crude window into an awakening to value, all of which is erotic, but only the very beginning of which is, in our narrow sense, in the physical and lustful sense, erotic. So he ends up with a conception of philosophy that, again, as I said, it can destabilize some pictures of what Plato thought philosophy. Was was. We are often reminded in introductory philosophy classes that the etymology of the term philosophy is, of course, Greek, and you know, the roots mean love of wisdom. But the love term there is not eros, it's philia, and that is a kind of less lustful, less passionate form of love, the kind of love that features in a friendship rather than in erotic love relationships. Plato wants us to think of philosophy in the Symposium as something like erosophy, as not, not just a friendship with wisdom, Sophia here is wisdom, uh, but as a, an erotic love of wisdom, a being drawn outward ecstatically and erotically toward that which we even to know. He wants the first stirrings of physical love to be the opening to that world of experience in which we're trying to grasp that which exceeds us and cultivate it in ourselves and others.
0: It's too bad we aren't called erosifers anymore. I, I sort of feel like maybe we'd be more central to the culture if we were. But seriously, can you say more about how we can have erotic desire for wisdom. I just think that many of our listeners will probably be having a hard time understanding that, maybe be giggling to themselves about the very idea.
1: This takes us right to the middle of Socrates' speech, or recounted dialogue with Diotima. So again, Diotima is a priestess or a female mystic. Socrates credits her with having taught him what love is, what love means. Uh, She might have been his lover in our narrow sense of that term. Certainly, he was his lover in the wide aerosophic sense of eros. What she conveys to Socrates is that the erotic impulse is the impulse to reproduce in the medium of the beautiful. She thinks that this is an impulse to immortalize, to project oneself into a future successfully to outlive the moment, and to expand into a desired future. And she thinks that this impulse to reproduce, this fecundity of Eros, can take many different forms, all of which are sort of analogically related. So the most obvious form would be reproduction in the medium of a beautiful body. That's what we think of as Eros. We don't always have the reproductive all remind him, we're gripped by Eros, but at any rate, that attaches to what we think Eros is, but she thinks that this impulse to reproduce in the medium of the beautiful can take place also in our relation to other human souls. So she sees a continuity between the way in which we have gone to another body and the way in which we're drawn to another soul, and that continuity is, is to me, is at least accessible to us. It's not a laughable thing. Because we do experience Eros as not just the opening to a sack of flesh, but the opening to a human being in full. We sometimes spend sleepless nights erotically uncovering the secrets of and the longings of and the being of another soul. And we think of that as an experience of being bitten by intimate love, an erotic experience.
0: This idea about the fecundity of eros is a little bit difficult for contemporary readers to grasp. I mean, we've all but separated the erotic impulse, the impulse for sexual union with reproduction, for one thing. But even more importantly, I think in the context of the symposium and the the Greek context generally, we're talking about practices of pederasty. That's obviously not fecund either. So there must be some other sense of of fecundity at play here. So I just wondered if you could say more about what that is and, and how we're supposed to understand it as essentially related to what is at the beginning anyway, an erotic, physical sort of love or attraction.
1: Well, it's my inclination would be to turn not to the content of Socrates' Conversation of Diotima as as he recounts in at the feast, but rather to the example of Socrates, and we get a picture of the example set by Socrates in the last section of the Symposium. So one of his aspiring lovers, Alcibiades, arrives, uh, kind of crashes the party right at the end, drunk off his butt, and uh, he has been pursuing Socrates and trying to sleep with Socrates for a while, and he's run into some frustrations that are supposed to be revelatory, it seems to me. And that's what I mean when I say that the example of Socrates can be, you know, quite important here to figuring out what Plato is trying to convey to us. The practice of pederasty is stood on its head, so to speak, in the story we get of the relationship between Alcibiades and Socrates in a couple of different ways. You know, first, Alcibiades, the younger man, the young, beautiful man, is the suitor. Trying to seduce the older, less attractive man. Second, the consummation of the seduction does bear the mark of the perspective of the older participant in this relationship, that is Socrates, but that mark is precisely, in our sense, not erotic. So, what he seems to be trying to do is precisely to get Alcibiades to rethink or to redirect his erotic urges, to rethink what their real object is. The lesson here, as far as I can tell, is that the real object of these erotic urges is the reproduction in the medium of the beautiful of Alcibiades' own character. The thought is that Alcibiades is pregnant with, so to speak, a better Alcibiades, and that the right kind of erotic connection with Socrates is the erotic connection of awakening conversation, and that connection can give birth, is designed to give birth in the medium of the beautiful, to that with which Alcibiades is pregnant, that is a better Alcibiades. So Socrates could, could be thought of here as providing a reading of the Athenian thought that there's something more noble about homosexual than heterosexual sex, precisely because it's not possible for a physical reproduction of a new human being to arise from it, it directs our attention at a different kind, and maybe a more noble kind, of erotic reproduction. That is, erotic reproduction of better souls and the participants. Socrates' picture of what proper pederasty consists in is displacing the initial lustful urges so that a new urge is Implanted in the younger soul an urge to be more virtuous, to be better, and to move toward that goal through illuminating conversation with an elder.
0: So, erotic desire takes beauty as its object. This desire gets going or it's activated by some perception of beauty. Now, there's physical beauty, the beauty of the human body, physical bodies, but there's also this higher perception of beauty, which he wants to associate. With virtue, maybe even with God, but why call the higher thing erotic? Because, as you've mentioned, there are these other Greek words for love. Why not call it philia? Why don't we have philia for virtue?
1: Why call it eros? I I suppose it's the, the common ground here is the experience of ecstasy, the experience of a kind of a dissonance between what is and what could be. But this is where some of those passages that I value so much in. And Carson's take on the Greek understanding of Eros in in the little book, Eros the Bittersweet, really come into their own. So she thinks of the characteristic experience of Eros as a kind of an ecstatic encounter with an image that has two related but slightly dissonant elements. One element of the image is that which is there before you, and the other element of the image is that which is leading to be born in that which is there before you, as already, so to speak, realized and seen in that which is there before you. So seeing everything in light of its best potentiality just is, by Ann Carson's understanding, the erotic experience or the, the kernel of unity in all erotic experiences. Among the erotic experiences now, she thinks, are, say, the writing of a poem What does a poem do? It finds language that re-describes things in such a way that their hidden kernel of goodness or potentiality or, you know, the more splendid image that's waiting to be born in them can be born, and permitting it to be born in the eyes of the reader of the poem, helping it to be born by bringing it into words in the mind of the writer of the poem, that's the stuff of poetry then she sees a common experience between that ecstatic, erotic engagement with the world that brings its potentiality into light by superimposing that potentiality over you know, the world of matter in motion, then she sees that philosophical inquiry, understood in a particular way, can be poetic, just like the use of metaphors or the redescription of concrete reality can be poetic. That is, that which we understand is pregnant with a higher, deeper understanding that brings out its beauty, its harmony, its splendor more clearly. And we're drawn into that ecstatically. We have the same sense of losing our bearings, of madness, of being uplifted, that is resident to the most ordinary kinds of a lot of experience. We have that when we're coming into philosophical wisdom on this platonic picture. That's the, the kernel of connection or unity that's supposed to license talk of erosophy rather than of a blander sort of philia.
0: Yeah, so I just want to pick up on what you're saying about Ann Carson and this kind of stereoscopy, because she also talks about erotic desire in terms of Kind of triangulation. So she talks about the fact that, you know, in erotic desire, you have the lover and the beloved or the object of the eros. And but then there's also what comes between them. It's constitutive of eros that it's a kind of reaching out towards what you don't have, to what is absent from you, to what you at least perceive that you need to be fulfilled, uh, to be satisfied. For In order for this desire to be satisfied, you have to have a kind of union, and that union is with the beloved. So she's talking about this in the chapter, What Does the Lover Want from Love?, And she's kind of mining the depths of this. This is page 62 of Eros, the Bittersweet. And she says, you know, on on the surface of it, the lover wants the beloved. But in some sense, that's not the case. Because there has to be this third element that keeps them apart in order for the Eros to sustain itself. There has to be this kind of distance, as you say, between the actual and the possible And so she writes, and this is a quote, both possibilities are projected on a screen of what is actual and present, both possibilities being possibility of who you are right now as the subject of erotic desire but then the possibility of what you might be once you actually possess or attain the beloved so that godlike self that possible self never known before now comes into focus and vanishes again in one quick shift of view as the planes of vision jump the actual self and the ideal self and the difference between them connect in one triangle momentarily That connection is eros. To feel its current pass through her is what the lover desires. And this is you know, such a such a wonderful passage and there's so much here, but she talks about the simultaneous pleasure and pain of this. You know, that that erotic desire it it is bittersweet and and it's kind of built into the structure of it.
1: I think that one thing that Plato's trying to get us to do in the symposium is to rethink the nature of the lack that is at the heart of errors. He takes that a common understanding, the understanding that Socrates says he brought to the table when he first started speaking with Diotima, is that the lack is a missing thing that you wish to possess. And so you want to make your own something that's not yet your own. And you need to refigure that understanding of the lack. And so when we fast forward to the exemplar of Socrates in bed with Alcibiades, but not consummating their connection physically, rather inducing a wish to to come near to Socrates in a different sense—that is, in mutual conversation that breeds mutual understanding. Now we have a sense of what it is that you lack and wish to make your own. That doesn't really involve sort of exclusive possession, because Whatever else we can say about insight into the good, if awakening to the good, you do make the good your own in a certain sense when you come into a fuller uh, grasp of it, you might even say a fuller possession of it, but it's not an invidious possession uh, in the way that, say, we often understand our connection to our, in the ordinary sense, erotic lovers as an exclusive, possessive relationship. My having the beloved means that no one else can in the immediate obvious sense, but in the sense that Socrates is trying to get us to think about you know, the erotic charge between well-constituted lovers in a proper love affair, that which you're coming into possession of really isn't something that others can't equally possess. The understanding of the good is at least potentially available to everybody all at once. We have a a different understanding of possession, a less conflictual understanding of possession, and we almost get that played out in the symposium right in the moment where Agathon, who also is an aspirant to be a lover of Socrates, and Alcibiades are, so to speak, positioning themselves with respect to him. I think one of the messages of that little farmer scene is that Alcibiades and Agathon both see a, a contest for a possession, whereas Socrates sees an aspiration for something that can be possessed, but where possession doesn't rule out its equal possession by all others. Yeah, in a way, there's, there's no wrong thing to love in the Socratic picture, as I understand it. That is, the entire cosmos is structured in the way that makes Eros a proper response to it, because everything, so to speak, is is so constituted that a fuller understanding of it would bring a potentiality for goodness into fuller view, and that's the erotic experience.
0: So we've kind of talked about the experience of Eros and its... Maybe it's internal structure or character, but I wondered if now we could focus on the objects of love for Plato. So, one of the classic conceptions of virtue or the virtuous person is one who has well ordered loves. You know, is, is there something like this in the symposium? The idea that maybe there's a hierarchy of loves or there's a difference between proper objects of love and improper objects of love?
1: But there is a hierarchy of loves that Diotima conveys to socrates and the nature of this hierarchy has worried a lot of people who are otherwise sympathetic to the socratic or Diotimic idea of love so on this hierarchical picture the first stirrings of love are towards beauty in human bodies uh, and then one learns to see beauty in human souls and then one learns to see beauty Itself, the form of beauty, the form of goodness, that relation to which gives to human souls whatever beauty and goodness state might have, that object of mesmerizing vision that can't be handed over uh, by dialectic, and that requires a certain kind of mystical appreciation of reality. That is by Platina's lights, and Socrates is. Reproducing or offering up her view by theotemic lights, that's the ideal form of love. That's the, the highest run in the ladder of ascent that ideally we find as we gain experience with love. And there's some very, I, I don't know, there's some troubling descriptions of the relationship between the lower and the higher ones of the ladder, right? So love of bodies, love of souls is referred to as something that you can view in order to climb to a higher form of love. And the implication is that this use has a kind of an expiration date, right? One wonders, well, what becomes of the love in particular others? What becomes of the love of this soul or that soul, this body or that body, once one has climbed to the beatific vision of the form of the good and fallen in love with it? Is, is there still a place in one's life for for love of people, love of individual human soul. Some commentators on Plato who are otherwise sympathetic with his conception of love have thought that it's really not clear that there is, and that this is a serious flaw in Plato's conception of love. It means that the particular people to whom we might, at a certain stage in our lives, direct love are, in a sense, replaceable. They are instruments for attaining a higher vision than any instrument would do, and their instrumentality has, as I mentioned a moment ago, kind of a shelf life in one's biography. But that seems like a pretty unappealing conception of the love that binds two human beings or many human beings together. And so one of the things that I really like about this, I, this well, Carson's idea, of stereoscopic vision, is that at least it gives me a hint of how, you know, a consistent tecratic might try to respond to that concern, right? So even if one has glimpsed the form of the good, it's still possible, and in fact it's even a more available possibility, to light up one's apprehension of each and every human being with goodness that is there to be teased out in them, or the Socratic image is, is midwifery, Right, the, the philosopher is supposed to be the midwife of the goodness that's in each and every soul, of that which is waiting to be born in each and every soul. And so it deepens and solidifies one's connection to other souls. It doesn't cast them away as dispensable instruments for an attainment that leaves them behind. So I think, and, and I think that that kind of fits with Socrates' actual practice as described by Alcibiades, because he is, in his way, very loving towards Alcibiades and Agathon, and in a way toward everybody who's present with the He's doing the work of midwifery as he understands it, right? Trying to see to it that the good thing that's waiting in all of those souls is born, and that is Eros. That's love. Right? But now we have eros understood again, as we were saying earlier, as something that can be directed at lots of different people in the pursuit of a common possibility, without really, if it's properly understood, occasion jealousy. I think that he is offering us a conception of love uh, that will strengthen us, not destroy us. Uh, and I suppose I'd go back to what I said earlier about the. The non-possessiveness of Socratic love, but it, its its object is not to to freeze the lover in a particular the beloved in a particular condition, and to enjoy him or her in that condition. It's not to pre- envision a state of affairs between the two or in the beloved that one then seeks to to bring about uh, and fixates on. It is to it invites us to respond to the potentiality for goodness that's, that's there in the beloved and to work on behalf of its birth, its flourishing, right? And so there, there's a, there's a sense of the not yet that draws us into love, but not of a personal need, that which, if it's not fulfilled, will leave one incomplete wanting, um, a lesser human being. None of that is in play in the Socratic picture of the loving way to to reach out to and to intimately connect with our fellow human beings. Yes, Plus I do think that, that eases uh, some of the more pathological and destructive forms of love. Maybe it provides a recipe for avoiding them entirely. So I, I imagine Is one of the great pathologies of love as picturing the the, need in a possessive sense, and and that, of course, opens the possibility of conflict in the ways that we were describing earlier. Another pathology, probably a related pathology, is thinking oneself to be in the need of a certain condition in the psyche of the other, in need of it as a condition for one's own completeness. A condition means something like devotion, single-minded intentions, I I don't know, a single-minded admiration that can be extended to no other. If one thinks that that's what one needs out of one's lover, then this creates a perpetual anxiety because, of course, it's the sort of thing that one can't secure. If one takes oneself to be in need of it, one can never secure an adequate verification of it. sends one down a wild spiral of amplifying anxieties and potentially dangerous jealousy. But it's an insatiable wish, right? Um, so I, I guess I, I do think of lots of the tragedies that illuminate for us the, patho- the potential pathologies, the pitfalls of the life, turn on an inability to bear up under the fact that the other is separate. I, I'm thinking a lot in the background of Othello of and Desdemona here. Othello wants something to be true of Desdemona and works himself into a deadly anxiety about it. But he wants her to have a certain view of him, a certain kind of single-minded relationship to him. That becomes his most pressing psychological need and things get wrong from there. Uh, as soon as one develops that psychological need uh, and wishes or a verification that is met, everything is lost because nothing counts as a verification.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think that's right. What Western literature is replete with these cases. You think of Dido or Anna Karenina or Troilus and Troilus and Crusader. These cases where the lover thinks that without the beloved there is no happiness, there's even no point in living. There's a lot of maudlin hand wringing and moaning and 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 even suicide. And, you know, when you want to diagnose this kind of pathology of love, because I think it is a pathology, and I think it's a common and, and understandable pathology. I don't mean to be judging these people too harshly, but, you know, it is a kind of pathology of love. And I think part of it has to be a lack of wisdom that is specifically manifested in a too narrow vision of the good life or, or what happiness is, but also I think a too narrow vision of the beloved. And it's, and it's too narrow because the vision of the beloved is as possessed by me. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and me alone. And th- and that seems to be the source of the trouble. So
1: the whole world is a problematic love. And way hey, you know, an intimate love with another person has as its you know, fellows a fuller and fuller awakening of both parties to it to that proper object of love, the world as a whole. Like that's what it is to cultivate the whole of another human being, so that if one thinks of it in that way, it, that does, it seems to me, provide a, a serious bulwark against the enclosure of the love within the space of two mind, or the world gets a twist, and the connection between those two minds becomes the source of everything worthwhile in life. That picture of why we both describe an extreme version of it, but we recognize less extreme versions of it as part of lots of romantic relationships, and insofar as that becomes an enduring, a fixed part of a romantic relationship, it seems to me that that brings an enormous cost to both participants. That's them all from the start of a good
0: life. So I want to talk a little bit more about love and wisdom. You know, as you know, I don't need to tell you that on a classic conception of the virtuous person, the virtuous person is the one who has well ordered loves, and so he loves the right things in the right way at the right time, and so forth. He has everything well ordered. And that's because such a person is practically wise. They have wisdom. And I take it that part of the idea here is that having well-ordered loves is supposed to, if not entirely inoculate you, it's supposed to help you avoid the destructive aspects of love. So, you know, the destructive aspects of love are too many to list, but chief among them would have to be jealousy and rivalries and various injustices, and even in certain extreme cases, a, a kind of violence. Literature and epic poetry is, is kind of replete with these examples of lovers who are unable to to be together, as the kind of, you know, the trope of the star-crossed lover. They are unable, for whatever reason, to have the object that they, or the, the person that they so desire, and, and this, this typically leads to disaster and, and downfall and, and tragedy for these people, and in extreme cases, even suicide. And I'm wondering if in Plato's ideas about love, if these people were wiser or, or somehow had more knowledge or self-knowledge about the order of things or the the hierarchy of loves, or if they had somehow were able to ascend the ladder of love uh, to the highest rung, that they, they would somehow be saved from this kind of self-collapse or, or self-destruction, or they would not... Be as susceptible to the more destructive aspects of love. I mean, do you, do you think that the notion of love in, in Plato is, is touching on this sort of thing in any way?
1: Well, one of the things that you mentioned that sort struck me was you spoke sort of a permanent ecstatic state that you're supposed to imagine these people in. I mean, I, 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 it seems to me that there is something like that that is held up as the you know, consummation. And one of the, one of the tensions in that idea is the very idea that ecstasy is a, right. is a state rather than say a process of opening, uh, of being. The introduction of obstacles in a dramatic context can serve all kinds of different dramatic purposes, but one of the things that it can do is to call our attention to the, the process of nearing. Uh, and the resistance faced by the process of nearing thats a permanent, but not state—a permanent process in a living relationship. For me, it was really formative to run across Stanley Cavell's writings on on marriage comedies, and in particular, what he calls remarriage comedies. So He—I I, think—some of his most gripping work is this work is done on distinguishing a genre of Hollywood romantic comedies that involve a couple that in some sense are already married but that are moving their way toward marriage. Here marriage is a remarriage. And as he sees it, and this is grossly oversimplified, remarriage is the truth of marriage. That a marriage properly figured involves a continuous year, a continuous reawakening, a continuous process of development and being gone One by the other, the other by the one, into more adequate and more fully developed versions of themselves. The obstacle that gets in the way of the marriage, you know, can be pictured as the dramatic device for conveying that, or bringing to light the living reality of the marriage or remarriage. And so, I don't know, I suppose well, there's some. It's hard to speak about Hollywood and speak in red, but I've been convinced by Cavell that some of the great moments in the tradition of romantic comedy really revelatory about the nature of marriage, but they need to be read in a way that brings that to life.
0: Well, thank you so much, Tal. As you know, you are uh, one of my favorite erosophers. It's been a pleasure and a joy, as always, to talk with you.
1: It's been really fun, Jen. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on the works discussed in today's episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu, and check out our blog, thevirtueblog.com. Finally, If you enjoy this podcast, do me a big favor and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.